So this is our fourth message today as we continue in looking at the churches of Revelation. And it, I don't know about you, but I know that I'm learning a lot that I didn't even know and through this series. But you know, I, want, I, I just want you to know that you know, it's, it's definitely a, a privilege to be able to be here to, to share with you. And so we're, we're going to continue in this series called Mail Call. This is part four. And we're going to be uh, learning about Pergamum. That's hard to say. Pergamum. Pergamum. Yeah, Pergamum. Look at it right there. Pergamum. Pergamum. And it's taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. But as I begin, I wanted to share that there was this uh, family from New York City that decided that they wanted to buy a ranch um, out west. And so they had intentions on raising cattle. And so their, their New York friends visited with them. Um, and many began to ask, you know, what they were planning to name the ranch. After all, most ranches usually have names to them, don't they? And so the father and the would-be cattleman replied, well, <clears throat> I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife, well, she wanted to name it the Susie Q. My son <clears throat> wanted to name it the Flying W. And my daughter, well, she wanted to name it the Lazy Y. And so, you know... So what we did was we decided, we all compromised on this, and we decided that we would name the ranch the Bar J, Suzy Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. <laughs> and um, another friend that was standing there asked, but where, where are all of your cattle? And the father responded, well, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> you know, there, there is a price to pay for compromising. Absolutely. You know, spiritually distracted or compromised. You know, faith and repentance are essential when facing what I would call ungodly influence. And you don't have to go very far to see ungodly influence, do you, in this world? And so is, is there anything in your life right now? Think about this for your own personal sake. Is there anything in your life right now that's hindering your, your witness? You know, our responsibility is to live as an overcomer. And we are supposed to be a light on a hill that shines bright in this, what we call spiritual darkness. And it is, it's a spiritual darkness that we're, that we're facing. So the question is this, or the statement is this, is that we need to repent. You know, we, we need to live a life of faith and we need to avoid compromise lifestyle, compromising situations. You know, and for, for those of you who are just joining us, and there might be a couple out here that are just joining us, we have spent the last three weeks in the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, specifically, we've been reading other churches' mail. That's what we've been doing. I know it's against the law to do that, but we've been doing it anyway. You know, one, one, one envelope at a time is what we've been doing. And, and we've been unfolding the seven letters from the Son of God 
See, Jesus is the one who is writing this, the Son of God, to the seven churches in Asia. And although these seven letters weren't addressed to us, they do address the cares and the concerns and the crisis faced by ours and countless other churches throughout centuries. Not just this century, but throughout centuries. Since, since John delivered these letters from Jesus to these churches. So we've already investigated the letters to the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna. We talked about Smyrna last week. So after leaving Smyrna, a letter carrier, remember this is all in, this is all in a, in a, um, a postal route. The letter carrier traveled along the, the, the coast of the Algean Sea for about 40 miles. You would follow the Algean Sea about 40 miles up north. Then the road would turn northeast along the, the Caicos River. And about 10 miles inland stood this impressive city. I mean, absolutely impressive city called Pergamum. You know, built on a hill. And it was a thousand feet. A thousand feet above sea level overlooking the surrounding countryside, you know, creating what, what they call a natural fortress for them. So rivaling Ephesus, you know, they, 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 they definitely rivaled Ephesus as the, the leading city in the region. So Pergamum had become the capital of the province of Asia and the center of Asian culture. It was, it was proud of its link with Rome, and if you remember, we talked about the last two churches and their link with Rome, but they were very proud, just like Smyrna, just like Ephesus. But here's what Jesus had to say to the Christians living in Pergamum. And this morning I've asked Bonnie to come and she's going to open that letter and read it to us. So Bonnie, if you'll come up and, and pull that letter out of the mailbox. That was hand delivered this week. Yeah. Yeah, it, just be careful, don't, because it's on parchment paper and it might fall apart, so it's that old, so go ahead and read that for us if you would. Try to read into that microphone there so people can hear you. Okay. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share twelve. I share to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. May God's love be made complete in us. Sincerely, the Apostle John. Okay. You know, if you, if you read all the different um, letters to the churches as you're looking down through there, it's all kind of in a uniform manner. And Jesus, just like the, the first two letters, Jesus begins the letter with Pergamum here by giving them his credentials. And so Jesus shares with them why he is the guy that has the right to tell them what, what, what he's going to tell them. So in the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus described himself as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you remember, it says, what are the seven golden lampstands? Well, that is the churches themselves. Uh, an encouraging imaging uh, image uh, reminding the church that he was with them and that he would always be with them. Then to the church at Smyrna, as we look back from last week, he says that he is the first and the last, the God of all creation, who knows the beginning from the end. He's the first and the last. But to the church at Pergamum here, Jesus provides a much more, what I would say, a much more fearful image. He describes himself as the one with the, the sharp two-edged sword, the sharp two-edged sword. This imagery, just as with several of the letters, comes directly out of the first chapter that Ginger read for us uh, four, three, four weeks ago when John beholds the glory of Jesus. Remember that? Um, John says this in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. He says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, He's describing Jesus here, dressed in a, a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was as white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the, the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So, so John describes Jesus there. Now, now before you, you try to picture Jesus walking around heaven with this double-edged sword hanging out of his mouth, I just want to say that we need to understand that this wasn't meant literally. You know, John, John's description of Jesus, you know, it's always filled with metaphors and symbols and other colorful imagery. I think that this particular image is probably drawn from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, when he says this, For the word of God is active, or alive, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the, the, the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So he's talking about the word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword there. So you see, just as the sword was a symbol for Rome's authority and a judgment, Jesus' double-edged sword that John talks about coming out of his mouth represents 
Jesus' ultimate authority and judgment over the world and over the church. And if you'll notice that he doesn't hold the sword in his hand, rather it protrudes from his mouth, indicating, and I think this is really great, folks, indicating that it is by his words, it's by Jesus' words that mankind is going to be judged. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 12. He said, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father says, the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. In other words, the words, the commands, the teachings of Jesus, they, they form what I would call the dividing line on humanity. There, there are those who accept his words. There are those who believe his words. There are those who obey his words. And there are those who don't. But that's it. That's it. It's either you're either doing it or you're not. That's all there is to it. Jesus was reminding the believers of this ancient city and us by extension that when Christ comes again, it's going to be his words that will stand by which all humanity is going to be judged. It's by Jesus and what he says to us, well done or depart from me. The word of God will cut true and deep to divide truth from error. This word of God, this word of God will cut through all the spiritual false teachings and it will cut through the worldly lies. The word of God will separate and clearly reveal truth from error. If you want to know what real truth is, truth is found in his word. It's not found in a politician or a preacher or, or, or anybody else. It's found in his word. Real truth. The word of God cuts deep much like a double-edged sword used properly in the battlefield to reveal sin and bring spiritual healing and life to those who believe and obey it. The Word of God will accomplish all that it is designed and intended to to accomplish when used correctly. The Word of God is all-powerful and it can cut through a spiritual heart of stone. It can cut right through it. However, if the Word of God is ignored muzzled, imprisoned, and the Word of God can be imprisoned, not listened to or not obeyed, not shared, then it's going to do nothing for the person who is living in rebellion of the things of God. What's that say to us, guys? What's that telling us that we need to do? We need to be sharing His Word. So remember, remember this. The word of God is powerful. God spoke and the universe came into existence. It didn't come by this big bang 
It didn't come like that. The, the Genesis says, you know, in the beginning was the word and, you know, it just went on there talking about the fact that God created this world. God spoke it into existence. The word of God will break free. The word of God is, is living and active. Just as the, the book of Hebrews said there, it's living and active. The word of God will never totally be extinguished. And let me tell you, there have been people who have tried to do that. Down through the centuries, there have been people who have tried to muzzle the word of God, have tried to completely get rid of it. And look, I have my Bible right here right now. You have a Bible with you. The Word of God is still with us, even though people have tried to extinguish it. Well, where are those people now? The Word of God will accomplish all this that it's meant to accomplish. And, and all the promises in, in, in of God and Scripture, they will, they will come true because God is a God who keeps His promise. The power of God's Word will break every chain. The power of God's word will break every chain. Faith in Jesus will arise. Lives will be changed. And no power on earth or even the gates of hell will ever be able to prevail against the the word of God. Amen? In a world of noise, I believe that the, the only real voice of truth is the voice of Jesus. I don't know if your Bible, does your Bible have the red letters in it? If you look through there, it does. Some of the Bibles, like mine, has a lot of the red letters there. Well, let me tell you something. That's important. The red letter words in your your leather bound or whatever Bible you have are the most important words ever spoken or ever recorded because they're the voice of Jesus. They are the voice of Jesus. They're the words of Jesus. You know, the voice of Jesus is the voice of of, of the eternal God. And John MacArthur says this. He says, this voice, this, this is the voice of the sovereign power, the voice of supreme authority, the very voice that will one day, that will one day command the dead to come forth from their graves. This is the one voice. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Who said that? That's right. They sang that. The voice of truth. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. So important. So if we want to experience eternal life, then we need to listen to his voice and live by his words because Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are are spirit and life. They are spirit and life. You know, that's quite an introduction, I think, for those in Pergamum who had been listening to him. You know, it, it may have been reassuring for them, but for those who hadn't listened to him, I would imagine that those words are pretty frightening. If you're not obeying what God wants, I would imagine it would be pretty frightening. So after Jesus gives his credentials, Jesus gives them a quick compliment to the church at at Pergamum here. He says this in verse 13 there. He says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. 
You have refused to deny me. That's what he says in the New Living Translation. You have refused to deny me. The church at Pergamum was committed. You know, scholars are, are divided as to why Jesus refers to Pergamum as the city where Satan's throne is. You know, it, it could it could have been for a number of reasons. Well, let me say this. Pergamum boasted an extensive and influential imperial cult devoted to the worship of Caesar. And if you remember back, we looked at Ephesus, we looked at Smyrna, and they too had this worship of Caesar. You know, they built, they, they were the first ones to build the temple dedicated to emperor worship. And maybe as early as 29 BC, they did this in honor of Augustus Caesar. And so Pergamum was also the center of worship for four primary Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. It was the, it was the home of Athena, Diocinus, uh, Asclepiosus, <laughs> what names, and Zeus. These four gods. Some connect Satan's throne specifically to the worship of Asclepius, who was a serpent god. So live snakes were, were left to slither freely throughout his temple. Worshippers believed that if one of those snakes were to bite you, that you would be blessed by that God. That you would be blessed. I, I think I would be stepping on a snake or cutting its head off if it was trying to bite me. Since Satan is referred to in Revelation as, as the, the serpent of old or the ancient serpent, there seemed to be a connection there that that's possible as to the reason why Jesus said what he said. But I tend to think that Satan's throne is more in a reference to the altar that was made for Zeus. Zeus was the king of the pantheon of, of Greco-Roman mythology, and as such, he represented all the gods of mythology. You know, most importantly, the altar of Zeus, which included an immense colonnade, which is this sort of outdoor worship area, centered around an imposing monument that incorporated this 18-foot-tall altar and sculpture of Zeus proudly sitting upon his throne. So in any case, life as a Christian wouldn't have been easy in such an overwhelming pagan and hostile society. In fact, it cost at least one believer his life, if you remember, as, as, as Bonnie had read, you know, nothing is really known about Antipas besides the fact that Jesus talks about him here. You know, he was a faithful witness who was martyred for his loyalty to Jesus. You know, I don't know how accurate the information is, but according to early tradition, during Nero's reign, and we know how terrible Nero was, we talked about that last couple weeks, but it was during Nero's reign that, that, that Antipas was put into this this brass bull, they had this, they built this huge brass bull and Antipas was put inside of this brass bull and it was lit on fire and it, they roasted him. That's how he died. They literally roasted him to death. But yet, even under threat of agonizing death, Antipas remained loyal to Jesus and refused to deny him. He absolutely refused to deny him. And yet, folks, so many Christians 
across our country, across this world, deny Christ almost on a daily basis. You know, and it may not be with our words that we deny Jesus, because I know many of us will not go out there and say, I don't believe in Jesus. The heck with Jesus, no way. None of us are going to go out and do that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't maybe do it by our words, but we do it by our actions or by our attitudes. We deny Christ. Someone once said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And that is, that is just, it's what's unbelieving in, in this world. You know, they, the people out in that world just find it simply unbelievable that, that we would do that. But she, Antipas strikes me as the kind of person who truly tried to live out his faith and he did it out loud. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid. You know, he was a witness. You know, he never hid his love for Jesus. He never shied away from it. He never backed down. He continued to share Jesus in spite of the violent opposition and it ultimately cost him his life. But it was his earthly life that it cost him. Let me ask you this. This is an important question. If following Jesus became illegal in this country, which it very well could, guys, what evidence would they have against you that you're a Christian? How loyal would you be how loyal are you when you leave here and you go home and, and no one's looking when you go to work? How, how committed are you to Jesus and his church while you, while, while you think about those things? And your commitment, Jesus follows up this compliment that he gives to the church at Pergamum with a criticism. See, even, even though Antipas and others were completely committed to Jesus, still had, they still had some internal problems. And this church, the church at Pergamon, they, they, had, they had these internal problems. Notice what it says there in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites, to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. He goes on to say, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, how many of you have been doing the reading? Because a little while back here, you just read about this story about Balaam and Balak. It's found, in, the story is found in Numbers chapter 20 through, through 25. And Balaam was this spiritualist hired by Balak, a king who was very unhappy with Israel because Israel kept crossing into their land, and so he wanted to curse the Israelites. That's what he wanted to do. And so Balak asked him to do that, but God ordered Balaam not to curse them. So when Balak had him pronounce the curse, Balaam, what he did was he blessed them instead because he didn't want to disobey God. 
So this happened a couple times. And so Balaam and Balak kind of caught onto that. And so what they did was later on in Numbers chapter 25, um, pretty much Balaam tells Balak, here's what you need to do. Have some of those Moabite women go down and entice the Israelites. Entice them. So that the men would sin sexually and then they would end up marrying them. And then what's going to happen is they're going to end up worshiping the Moabite gods. And thus they will deny the one true God. And they did that. That's exactly what happened. And they lost favor with God. Now if you fast forward that several centuries to the church at Pergamum, we find some people whose, whose teaching was resulting in the same kind of immorality in that church. As a matter of fact, the Nicolaitans' teachings are often referred back to Balaam and Balak, as, as, as Jesus did right there in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. See, the Nicolaitans, they were named after a guy by the name of Nicholas. Do you remember who Nicholas was? If you look in the book of Acts chapter 6, there were, there were, I think it was seven men that were chosen to wait on the table so that the apostles could be about the Lord's business with his word. Nicholas was one of those men that was chosen in chapter 6 as a servant to the church at Jerusalem. They believe that God's grace, and this, and this is the Nicolaitans, and they're, they're taking after Nicholas. They believe that God's grace was so overwhelmingly abundant that it didn't matter what evils they perpetrated, God would still forgive them. Based on their belief, their philosophy was this. Live it up! Live it up, so to speak. You know, the, the more we sin, the more grace we receive. So go out and have a great time! And based on that belief, their philosophy was this. You know, just live it up. Therefore, you know, God, you know, if we, if we do that, the more grace we receive, therefore, the more God is glorified. You know, early church writers are divided on whether Nicholas actually taught this distorted doctrine or whether this was a perversion of his biblical teaching on grace. We're not really sure, but according to the writings of the early church fathers, the early church leaders, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise. That's what he taught, implying that total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. You don't have to worry about that. But you know what? I'm inclined to believe the latter. In any case, it had found its way into this church at Pergamum, and it had led many believers to participate in pagan festivals and and absolutely gross sexual immorality. You know, we talked about that earlier, about these children being taken. Well, things were happening in this church. You know, the, the most dangerous lies, if you, if, if you believe this or not, the most dangerous lies are, are the ones that are mostly true. You know, that's, that's what made this doctor so deadly. And so Paul dealt with this same issue in his, what I call the, the magnum opus of grace. And that is in the book of Romans. If you look at the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, Paul summarizes his argument 
about all sufficiency of the grace of God with this statement. He says, the law was brought in so that the, that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so you see, on the one hand, the Nicolaitans were kind of telling the truth. God's grace is superabounding. You know, there, there is no sin that, that we can commit, no, no matter how vile or strange it is, that is, would put us beyond the grasp of God's love and God's grace. His grace is deeper than the deepest ocean. It's wider than the widest sea. But you know what Paul did? He, he anticipated how some people might abuse God's grace because he dealt with those people. And so Paul opens up the next chapter, chapter 6 of Romans, with this statement. Let's read 1 through 4. He says this, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, absolutely not! We We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, Paul saw that. He knew what people were going to try to do, that people would try to take advantage of that. So do you see what Paul is saying there? It's not that there is anything that you can do that God's grace won't forgive, but any conversion experience that leads to a a life that's worse than when you became a Christian, and it's worse after you became a Christian, is not true conversion. It's false conversion. When we commit our lives to Jesus through baptism, we put to death our sinful nature, our old way of life, And we are given a new life, a fresh start. In other words, God's grace ought to change us for the better. That's what it should do. So this leads us to the final component of Jesus' letter, and that's a command. He gives them a command. Immediately following this criticism, this horrible doctrine that they had embraced, Jesus provides a remedy for them. He tells them what they need to do. He commands them saying, repent therefore. In, in, in verse 16, repent therefore. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He tells them there to repent therefore. Otherwise, he's going to come and fight. You know, there is, there is only one word in this sentence right here. If you look at this passage there, there's only one word that is an imperative. And that is the word repent. The word repent, it means to change. What the Nicolaitans and so many others like them down through the centuries didn't understand was that repentance, change, is essential to Christian living. There has to be a change. Christians are, are never commanded to, to do what comes naturally or, or to blend in with society. We are commanded to be different. We are commanded to deny our sinful nature, to deny ourselves. We are commanded to change. We are commanded to change. 
And, and what are we to be changing into? Well, Paul has an answer for that one as well. He tells us that. I just read it this morning. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. We were created in Christ to become like Jesus. And that's what our lives should be. You should be able to look at your life. And I don't know if you do this, but you know, at the end of the year, do you, how many of you make resolutions? How many of you do resolutions? You know, I, I don't do them anymore be, only because on January the 1st, I've, 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 I've already failed. You know, so, so I don't do them, but I, but what I do do is I, I, I look back on the previous year and my previous years and, and I want to see if there has been any improvement in my life so that I have something to, to look forward to, to make a goal for in the future of my life. We were created in Christ Jesus to become like Christ Jesus. And if we're not becoming like Jesus, then we have to ask ourselves, why are we not becoming like Jesus? See, the Nicolaitans thought that they could be one with Jesus, yet live like they never knew him. It just doesn't work that way. And yet... American Christianity today has followed more in the footsteps of the Nicolaitans than it seems that they followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Because all across the country, we have led people to Christ, we've baptized them into Christ, and then they spend the rest of their lives living just like the world. That's tough. For you see, statistics show that abortion is just as prevalent among those who claim to be Christians as it is among those who are not Christians. Divorce is just as prevalent in the Christian society as it is in non-Christian society. Sexual immorality is just as prevalent in the Christian society as it is in the non-Christian society. And folks, this ought not to be this way. Repentance is important and, and what repentance really means is it means a change. It's a change in a different direction. You're going down the wrong path. You meet Christ and you do this complete turnaround, you know, and, and you're going in a different direction. Change your hearts and lives. You know, we, we've got to change. G, to turn to Jesus, you know, receive and reflect his glory. That's what he says there in Second Corinthians. Paul tells us that, that we were, 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 designed to reflect his glory allow him to cleanse the temple of your heart to change you from the inside and, and to make you more and more like him his command to them is his command to us and that is to change has anyone here ever been a michael jackson fan anybody a michael jackson fan some of you aren't going to raise your hands because you're too embarrassed to I'm sorry if you are, but I'm not really a fan, but I, I do listen, to, I've listened to a few of his songs, but there was this one song that he wrote that I think makes the point as to what we're talking about here today. This is what he sings. He says this, I'm going to make a change for once in my life. It's going to feel real good, going to make a difference, going to make it right. 
I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Remember that song? If you're ready to make a change, now's the time to do it. Don't wait. Now's the time. Much like Pergamum, evil in society is all around us. It's, it's attempting to infiltrate the church. It's, it's attempting to infiltrate our very own souls. And may we always allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and let us be willing to change and repent and turn from sin, not allowing sin or spiritual compromise to gain a foothold within our hearts. That's my prayer for all of us. Jesus knows the, the intense pressure you face every day, the trials, the suffering, the afflictions that you go through. He also knows your faithfulness. He does know that. Sometimes fighting the spiritual battle before us can become so consuming that what we end up doing is we take our, our, eye, our spiritual eyes off of God. And that's when we start to sink. But let us not be fooled or seduced into thinking that spiritual compromise or watered-down values are okay or acceptable to God, because they're not. As John says in verse 17, he says, let us listen to what the Spirit says. Let us listen to what the Spirit says. Listen to the Spirit of God. Be, Be spiritually on guard. Press into God. Press into Him. Choose today to be an overcomer. Practice spiritual discipline and be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Passionately seek the love of God and share it with those around you. We need to be sharing that around with with people around us. Be willing to, to be the change and let others see that change. Pray and trust and obey with the Lord and, and walk in His ways. Always remember, always remember that God is in control no matter how things may appear. They may look terrible, you know, our society and things that are going on in our society may look terrible, but God is still in control no matter what. People will take notice and listen when they witness the change in you and see your faith in Jesus Christ. They will take notice of that. They may try to push you. They may try to make fun of you, but they're going to notice it. But guess who else is going to notice it? The Lord is going to notice it. Jesus also said in verse 17 there of Revelation chapter 2, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. What do you think he talks about there as far as the hidden manna? Well, I think he's talking about Jesus. Remember what Jesus said back in, in the Gospel of John, and we talked about this in the book of Ephesus. Jesus compared himself to the bread of life, the true manna that helps us overcome the compromises of life. Jesus is the true bread. He is the hidden manna that helps us to overcome. See, compromise never shows its face for what it is. It never shows its face for what it is. It always projects itself as a little white lie. Ah, that's no big deal. We're just having a little bit of fun, you know? It's perfectly harmless. Come on. 
So it seemed to the church at Pergamum, and maybe perhaps to you. So if you're tired of being conned by compromise, I want to share a couple tips with you to stop the enemy from getting into the door. The first is this. Always remember that compromise never occurs quickly. It doesn't. Just like water erodes, compromise erodes one drop at a time until there's a comfortable trickle. Then, after that comfortable trickle, comes the acceptable stream. And then after the acceptable stream comes, then an uncontrollable flood takes place. So remember that compromise never occurs quickly. Second of all, compromise always lowers the standard. If you're going to compromise, it's always going to lower the standard. The flood never results in greater personal purity, but always in deeper moral depravity. In other words, what I'm saying there is those who compromise, those those we compromise with don't come up to our standards. Oftentimes what happens is we come down to the standard that they're comfortable with. The third is this. The wisdom of Andrew Bonner's words is affirmed in the truth that compromise is often the first step towards total disobedience. If we compromise on one thing, we're going to compromise on another and then another and then another to the point where, because see, compromise is never satisfied. Compromising is never satisfied. It never stops after having gained an entrance. You know, it it just keeps coming, pushing the boundaries, wearing down resistance until our lives resemble a once plowed field now overgrown with weeds reclaimed by the wild. You know, when I, when I was a youth minister, I, I, I did youth ministry for 35 years, and I, and I worked with these, these youth, and I always told them, we did a, I did a class um, on purity, uh, the, the silver ring thing. We took, I took like 30 young people through that one time, and, and I told them that our bodies are meant to go forward. They're not meant to go backwards. So every step you take forward sexually, you're not going to be able to come back from that. Because they were meant to go forward, to go forward, to go forward, until finally they reached their destination. Well, that's exactly what compromise does. It, it never, it never stops wanting to gain interest. It never stops being satisfied. So this morning, I don't know where your relationship is with God. If you have been seduced by compromise or by the flirtatious acts of this world or just plain old immorality, then today you can make a change. Whatever that change is that you need to make, all I can tell you is this, is God is here, he's with you, and so are we. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, we will. But you need to make the change. You know, as Michael Jackson says, I, you know, I'm, I'm stopping with them, you know, looking at the man in the mirror, you know, and he says there, I'm asking him to make a change. If you want to make the world a better place, look at yourself. Look at yourself in that mirror and make that change.